With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning and welcome to the AgNet News Hour. Thank you for joining us this morning. Coming up later, water supplies are in good shape despite the slow start to the rainy season. And we'll also have details on the upcoming California Land and Water Conservation Conference. But we start off today with Chuck Zimmerman. I'm visiting with Kara Wells, and we're going to talk about a company called Mgenesis, and this is brand new to me. So let's uh, start kind of from the beginning. Uh, tell us about um, what happened that made you want to start this. So about 15 years ago, I became really interested in using IVF and embryo transfer to breed animals. And so I pursued a PhD in this area. And during that time, I realized it didn't really matter if it's a cow, a person, a horse, or a goat. The way that people evaluate embryos hasn't changed in about 50 years. And as a result, people are unintentionally transferring dead and dying embryos into these recipients every day. And so I saw a massive opportunity to possibly improve pregnancy outcomes here if we could just have better, more objective ways to evaluate embryo health. Are you focusing on a specific species? Sure. Right now, about 99% of our data is in the cattle model. We realize that embryo transfer and IVF is becoming a more and more popular way to breed these animals. Producers are investing in it, and so we have collected data in both beef and dairy animals. We've trained our machine learning models to evaluate the health and real-time activity of these embryos, and we've launched a software solution to evaluate bovine embryos. It sounded like you have a very unique way to evaluate these embryos before they have to even be transported somewhere. The idea behind our technology is based on the fact that an embryo should be a growing and living organism. The cells should be dividing and they should be using energy, but this is not something that an embryologist can see of the embryos under the microscope. So we wanted a way to analyze this that was practical and affordable to the IVF labs and the embryologists. So we landed on taking a 30 second video of these embryos on a smartphone mounted to a microscope and we started analyzing the video data of these embryos frame by frame and it turns out some of the embryos had more activity than others that we have now correlated to their pregnancy outcomes so in our efforts to solve this problem we're really trying to look at how the embryo develops as a measure or the pulse of its competency. We're working with several um, independent practitioners, several large farms, producers, and dairies that have been with us to get the data that we needed to train these models, and now we're able to use it more in a decision-making process. And what we've seen in these videos is right now we can do two things. We can help them manage their breeding strategy by showing them which embryos are alive and healthy and which embryos are weaker. But it's also helping the IVF labs and their quality control systems because they can make sure that their embryos are growing at the right rate and use it to boost the production of all the embryos that they make in their labs. So where are you uh, looking to start in terms of finding commercial business? 
So we've created a software system. It's a web-based platform where you go to our website, you upload the video, and you get the results in less than a minute. Being that it's software, it is very easy to launch it globally rather than a product that you have to ship and manufacture. But right now we're trying to target the more progressive seed stock and dairy producers that are using IVF and embryo transfer to breed their animals and use this as a way to improve their pregnancy outcomes so they get a higher return of investment on these procedures. So at this point, what are you doing in terms of your startup and how are you letting people know? Sure. So we are at the NCBA right now and trying to get in front of potential customers, users, and that right demographic. Uh, We have a team that's tried to be really active on social media. We've had the opportunity to have some nice articles and press go out there about us. And I have submitted scientific abstracts to all the scientific conventions this year so we can explain our methods, explain our processes, and share our data just to demystify some of the things that we do and get more confidence from the industry and our techniques. Will you stick with cattle for now, or are you going to look at at other species too? So right now our main focus is cattle, but we are slowly but surely starting to get data in other species, such as horses, sheep, and goats. Um, We do have a couple human IVF labs sending us video data to try to improve their embryo evaluation process. And we've done a couple fun projects for different researchers, nutrition, some embryo production and space companies. Our software allows us to analyze any embryo. The machine learning is best on cattle embryos, but we can still see how much activity and the growth rate of embryos of any species at this point. Well, what else would you want folks to know that we haven't touched on at this point? We are kind of creating a new category in the space. No one really does a Google search for embryo health testing or embryo health analysis because they don't know that it exists. So I really appreciate the opportunity to help make people aware that this technology can be used. We're really agnostic to any IVF lab. And, you know, if you want the data to look at your embryos and help improve these processes, we'd be happy to work with them and see how our systems can be a complement in your systems. All right. Well, thank you very much, Kara, for uh, visiting with me here and Chuck Zimmerman reporting. We go now to Brian German. And we are out in the New Holland booth at World Ag Expo 2024. And uh, who am I standing here with this morning? My name is Mike Terry. I'm with Raven. I'm a field system specialist for Raven here. Um, been with Raven for about two years now. We're standing in front of a fairly new piece of equipment f- for you folks here, and uh, sounds pretty exciting, and it's kind of getting rolled out in some different areas in California. So uh, tell me a little bit about this equipment here. So what we have here is our new uh, fan sprayer system. It is a uh, with our Hawkeye 2 system. And so with that is we're able to control droplet size as well as pressure and section, section control for sprayers and orchards, for vineyards and orchards as well. And the benefits of that is, is going to be just refining those applications further, right, just to make sure that you're, you're getting what you want where it needs to go? Correct. So with that, with the restrictions we have in California, we can actually control the droplet size more efficiently, have better traceability of where product is being applied in the, in the fields, and then trace it, going back and showing our records where we've applied and where we didn't apply. So traditional fan sprayers, when they would make coming out and they would make their turns typically their sprays are still on they have most don't have controls over turn off spray they just keep going with this when you 
leave your boundary point, the spray automatically turns off by itself. So therefore, when they're making turns or they have point rows where they're spraying on the left side and they're not spraying on the right where there's a roadway, it'll shut off on the right side and keep spraying on the left and control that same pressure and the, the key rate that the grower is looking for that's been applied. And all that's, uh, you, you program that in and then once you get going, that's, it's, it's going to know where you are based on GPS? Yes. So on the tablet we have inside the, inside the tractor, um, you select your field. You bring in from whatever your, your agronomist, your PCA is, is written down. They select that field, that recommendation, they select that. It will not uh, allow you to apply until you are inside that boundary. So the safety is there's no chance of an applicator applying outside the boundary or in the wrong field because he's outside that boundary. He would be outside that boundary at that point. And then part of some of the uh, digitization of this is, um, you know, it sounds like it helps kind of clean up some of that paperwork aspect as well. Absolutely. So with this process, it's all digital. Again, there you don't have an applicator in the tractor that's got a piece of paper, and if he loses it, he forgot where he's going or something. If that happens, uh, it's now digitalized. So when they complete the job inside the cab, they can send it back through our, our AgSync process, and it goes back to the, the agronomist or whoever that they are is their provider, and then goes through CalAg permits and to the counties from there. We were talking a little bit here, and without getting into too much specifics, uh, sounds like there's been some successes already with some acreage in California. I mean, what uh, what types of growers ha have been having some success with this, and what areas of California? So right now we have uh, about 10 systems going, uh, and we're in vineyards, uh, so wine grapes, table grapes, and lemons, so citrus as well. Those have been in Central Valley and on the coast along Salinas area. And anyone that wants to uh, learn more about this are obviously not going to be able to make it to the farm show here today, but uh, where can they learn more or, um, you know, get some more information on this? So right now you can go to uh, Raven, Raven's website, or any New Holland dealership in California. We can we can connect that way and, and go from there. It's just ask about the orchard sprayer and, and we'll connect that way. Thank you, Brian. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, looking back at pork's record year and beef strong finish in 2023, U.S. Meat Export Federation's John Harris has more. U.S. pork export value set a new record in 2023. U.S. Meat Export Federation President and CEO Dan Hallstrom has the details. It's just a fantastic finish to the year for pork exports globally. We're at a new value record of almost $8.2 billion in sales globally on U.S. pork. Of course, led by Mexico. Mexico's been leading it all year long. Uh, but really, the rest of Latin America has stepped up as well with with a record into the Central American region, the DR as well. Those exports generated record value for U.S. pork producers. The key is maximizing the carcass mix and the value of the whole carcass. So uh, we came in uh, in December with a very high number of over $70 per head payback for exports of pork. Uh, and that brought the, the annual record up to almost $64 a head for the year, which is an all-time record. So uh, one of the keys that plays into that is we talk a lot about the muscle cuts, but once again, we had very good performance out of the pork variety meat sector uh, in, in many places around the world. Beef exports finished the year with encouraging signs. As we all know, the beef has struggled throughout 2023 with, with considerable headwinds. Uh, not the least of which is uh, still waiting on a rebound in food service in Asia. But that being said, there was quite a bit of good news led by Mexico and Central America, 
the Latin American markets have performed well on U.S. beef, and that's really exciting. Uh, Caribbean's another area that has done well as food service is absolutely booming. And we're also uh, encouraged with the December performance, especially it relates to some of the Asian markets which have been lagging for so long, particularly Korea. Largest value uh, output uh, in the month of December in 18 months, so that's encouraging. And, and China had a good month as well. Empowering that full rebound of food service in Asia will lead to some good results, I feel, as we go into 2024. For more, please visit USMEF.org. For the U.S. Meat Export Federation, I'm John Harris. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. California's water supplies appear to be in good shape despite a slow start to the 2024 water year. During a media call last week, Deputy Regional Director of Operations for the Bureau of Reclamation's California Great Basin Region, Kristen White, shared insights as to how the water year is turning out. The record-setting winter we experienced during the 2023 water year left most of our reservoirs in good shape to start the 2024 water year. We began the water year with 8.17 million acre-feet of water in storage. That's more than double from 2022. This year's precipitation started off slowly, and we were still well below average at the time of the February 1st water supply forecast. The recent storms in February have added to the snowpack, bringing us near normal for Northern California. It's likely that we will see the water supply benefits from these very recent storms in the March 1st forecast update. Producers interested in propane-powered equipment have a variety of incentives and resources available to them through the Propane Education and Research Council. Director of Agriculture Business Development for PERC, Mike Newland, described how some of their incentive programs work. It will spell out how we pay out those incentives, at what levels of money, and how all that happens. It's a very simple process. It's online application. We're going to need a W-9 from you. You're going to have to fill out a small application, and then you're going to have to provide a copy of the receipt for that piece of equipment. Once that happens, it's a pretty short process, not more than a week or two, and we'll have cut a check and, and get that out the mail to you. So all that's spelled out at propane.com slash farm incentive. So we'd encourage folks to go there if they're looking to buy any equipment on the farm. Know that there's probably a propane option and then probably earn an incentive back from us. Fertilizer prices have come down from record highs, but there's still some potential for volatility moving forward. Head of Rabo Research Food and Agribusiness for North America, Roland Famasi noted what to keep an eye on and its impact on fertilizer pricing. Certainly very glad to see farm inputs come down off their peaks that we saw 12, 18 you know, months ago, 24 months ago. So pause it on the fertilizer for a second. That's one of the things that we're still keeping our eye on. Right now, we think as 2024 unfolds that we're still, we think fertilizer prices could come down a little more, but there's always risk in that space because of natural gas, right? Because it's so tied to energy, particularly nitrogen, you know, there's always that that risk in that nitrogen space. So uh, that's one to keep a close eye on. The National Cotton Council's early season planting intention survey indicates U.S. cotton producers plan to plant 9.8 million acres of cotton this spring, down 3.7% from last year. Upland cotton intentions are at 9.6 million acres, a decrease of 4.3%, while extra-long staple intentions show a 37.7% increase to a little more than 200,000 acres. 
In the West, upland cotton acreage is expected to increase 21.5%. California acreage is projected to increase substantially with a nearly 63% rise compared to the previous year. ELS cotton acreage in the West is also forecasted to increase nearly 38% from last year, largely due to improved weather conditions compared to 2023. In California, ELS cotton acreage is expected to surge by more than 62%. The annual California Land and Water Conservation Conference is coming up next month at the Hyatt Regency in downtown Sacramento. The conference will open at 9 a.m. on Monday, March 18th with an opening plenary session and will close on March 19th. California Council of Land Trusts will also be hosting an advocacy day at the state capitol on the following day. The conference is intended for anyone working in the field of land and water conservation, including land trust staff and board members, public agency staff, policymakers, private landowners, and other individuals interested in conservation. The full conference schedule is now available and includes plenary sessions, networking, breakout training on acquisition, stewardship, agriculture, and community conservation. More information about the conference is available at calandtrust.org. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. The Agriculture Secretary discusses the final report of recommendations by the Department's Equity Commission. That's coming up on this land of ours. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack talks about some of the almost 70 recommendations from USDA's Equity Commission's final report. We have a senior advisor in the Secretary's office whose job and function is to make sure that this department continues to see in the work that we do and the policies that we develop our farm workers. Our Forest Service needs to see tribal leaders and the people they represent as sources of knowledge and information, as partners in the stewardship and management of our force. And we've begun to do that with co-stewardship agreements. And we're in the process of converting a great deal of the information this department has in multiple languages so that that refugee family has access to the services that we provide. That young person in a public school, as they're going through the lunch line, asking themselves whether the food that is being prepared for them on that particular day understands and appreciates the culture they come from. And if it does not, that we at USDA need to make sure that it does. This report asks us to pay attention to that issue. Coffee and caffeine. New report shows that we are consuming too much of it. Gary Crawford gives us the details. Uh, that's the sound of our uh, single cup coffee brewing machine here at home. And in some households, it's getting a workout. So hook me up to the machine. Make coffee. Well, that guy uh, likes his coffee and the caffeine in it, I'm sure. And the average cup of coffee has a little over 100 milligrams of caffeine in it. The average coffee drinker in this country consumes about three cups a day. And according to the government dietary guidelines, healthy adults can consume as much as 400 milligrams of caffeine a day, no adverse health effects. But that is for healthy adults with no underlying conditions like heart or blood pressure problems. And it's not just coffee, however, that's involved when it comes to caffeine. Caffeine can show up in other foods, too. Kansas State University Extension food scientist Karen Blakesley. If you drink iced tea, lots of sodas have a lot of caffeine in them. Uh, Energy drinks have a lot of even more caffeine in them. So it's not just from coffee. 
Ah, very true. For example, Would you like to come over for tea? Ah, yes, teas vary widely, though, in caffeine content. Eight ounces of tea can have as little as 20 milligrams up to 120. And then... Soft drinks. 20-ounce soda can have from 22 to 70 milligrams of caffeine. And then, of course, a relatively new arrival on the scene. The energy drink. Yes, those can range from, say, Red Bull 8-ounce can, 80 milligrams of caffeine. But then there's at least one 2-ounce drink with 230 milligrams of caffeine in it. Plus, we have currently on the market caffeine-enhanced water and then chocolates and such. So some of us may be unwittingly getting a lot more than the recommended daily limit of 400 milligrams of caffeine. Certainly, per-person caffeine consumption in this country has been growing. One estimate put it at uh, a daily average intake. 1999 at 120 milligrams. By 2010, it was up to 165. 2018, 190. And today's estimates run from 210 to 238. But remember, this is the estimated average per person consumption. So Karen Blakesley says if you're curious about your own actual caffeine intake. The International Food Information Council has what they call a caffeine calculator. It's on their website at foodinsight.org. It gives you some options to choose from to determine how much caffeine you're consuming. There are places in there to type in how much and what type of coffee you drink each day. Even decaf coffee, instant coffee, tea, different types of tea, sodas, energy drinks, and chocolate. And again, that website is Food Insight, all one word, foodinsight.org. It has all things caffeine. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. More results are coming out from the 2022 Census of Ag. It's the nation's most comprehensive study of farming and ranching. Rod Bain looks at some of the data points from the 2022 Census of Ag. It allows us to take a snapshot in time, allows us to compare what has occurred over the five-year period, and begin to ask ourselves questions about the policy formation and the direction that we need to take in order to correct or deal with some of the challenges that the data presents. I'm Rod Bain. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack and others join us as we look at some of the major points of interest within the latest edition of the Census of Agriculture in this edition of Agriculture USA. Over 6 million data points about our nation's farms and ranches and those who operate them, down to the county level. That is the makeup of the foremost agricultural information resource in the U.S., the 2022 Census of Agriculture. Every five years, USDA conducts the census, with months of enumerating responses and crunching the figures to present the snapshot in time that is farming and ranching in the end of 2022. Among the findings of note, two particular data points that raise the concern of Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. Survey after survey continues to show a decline in the number of farms and in the farmland. In 2017, when we did the survey, there were 2,042,220 farms. Today, the survey reports we have 1,900,487 farms. That's 142,000 fewer farms in five years. In 2017, we had almost, well, a little over 900 million acres of land and farming. Five years later, we have 880 million acres. So we've lost 20 million acres. What has also been a concerning data trend throughout recent censuses of agriculture, the increasing average age of farm producers in our country. Brian Combs of USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service notes that found in the 2022 census. Overall 
average of all producers at 58.1. At a six-month increase from the 2017 Census of Agriculture, that is a smaller census-to-census rise in average producer age than seen in recent surveys. However, the demographic category of new and beginning and young farmers draw interest from various data points. For instance, the young producer is anyone who is involved in farm decision-making under the age of 35 as of December the 31st, 2022. And the census shows that 296,480 young producers were reported. There was also an 11% increase in the number of beginning farmers from the 2017 census. When looking at beginning farmers within the latest census from an average age standpoint, the average age of these new and beginning producers is 47.1, which is lower than the overall average of all producers. And within the total number of ag producers in the U.S. 30% of producers were considered new and beginning for the 2022 Census of Agriculture. An additional demographic data point. Female producers accounted for 36% of all producers. 58% of farms have at least one female producer. What does ag production look like according to the 2022 Census of Agriculture? Brian Combs starts with this. The total value of production increased almost 40% from 2017 to 2022. That was up to $543 billion from $389 billion in 2017. Crop sales accounted for 52% of that value in 2022, and those were up 45% from 2017. Livestock sales also increased, and they were up 35% from 2017. With so much information to share from the latest census of ag, Combs acknowledges release of various census-oriented reports will take place throughout the coming year. That includes further data on two new categories in the census series. The precision ag question was new. We'll be looking at that in combination with other data points to discover more about what those operations look like. 2022 is the first time that hemp was asked as an individual crop. NASA is planning on producing some additional information on hemp that will be released in the fall. Likewise, more exploration of the 2022 Census of Agriculture will take place in future programs. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Cindy Zimmerman has today's featured interview. We're here at the conclusion of the National Ethanol Conference in San Diego. I'm with President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, Jeff Cooper. Jeff, it was a heck of a conference. It was a heck of a conference, Cindy. I think this is probably one of my favorite NECs that we've ever had, and I've been to a lot of them uh, in the last 20 years. So this is this has been a great event. Lots of energy, uh, lots of enthusiasm coming out of this conference for the opportunities that lie ahead. I, I think everybody is really charged up uh, about the bright future that this industry has. Uh, you know, we we covered a lot of territory the last few days uh, surrounding all of the potential new opportunities, new markets, uh, new uses for ethanol, new technologies, um, and it's just very exciting stuff, very uh, inspiring, and um, I'm looking forward to to the year ahead. We certainly have some challenges ahead of us. We talked about those as well. Um, you know, I said yesterday in, in my State of the Industry address that this is going to be a year where the rubber meets the road for the ethanol industry. There's a lot of important decisions that uh, we are anxiously awaiting regulatory decisions, policy uh, decisions uh, that are going to have an important bearing on the future of this industry, not just in the short term, but perhaps for decades to come. So, uh, again, great event, great attendance. Uh, we had the most people here that we've probably had in eight or nine years. 
a lot of first-time attendees, which is very exciting. Uh, so overall, great event. I'm, I'm very pleased. Well, we're here in California, and one of the things that you did while you're at the event is RFA uh, gave its comments uh, to CARB on their LCFS. So t- tell about what you do. What did you tell them? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, we're in the middle of our, our, our biggest event of the year, and at the same time, we are submitting detailed regulatory comments to the California Air Resources Board. Uh, they had a deadline yesterday for public comments on amendments that they're making to the low-carbon fuel standard, and we uh, wanted to provide our input on what they're doing. We think there's uh, significant room for improvement in the LCFS amendments that they are proposing, one of the particular areas of concern that we have is around new, what they're calling sustainability requirements for crop-based biofuels. And this all stems from their concern around um, you know, certain imported feedstocks and imported biofuels, but they are painting with a broad brush and wanting to sweep all biofuels into some ill-defined new sustainability criteria that they are potentially proposing for the LCFS. We think that would, you know, put unnecessary and complex new burdens on ethanol producers without any benefit whatsoever to the program. Um, So that was one of our main comments. Of course, the other one is, why in the world do we not have E15 in the state of California? This is the last state out of all 50 states that has yet to approve E15, and if they care about reducing carbon emissions, which is the whole point of the LCFS, the easiest, simplest, lowest cost way to do that in the near term is approve E15. Um, if they did that, I guarantee you, guarantee you, stations across this state would be offering E15 as quickly as possible because it's, you know, obviously a lower carbon fuel but it's also lower cost. And this is the state with the highest fuel prices in the country. And if retailers can offer a little bit of a discount to their customers, uh, as they would be able to do with E15, they would jump at the chance to do that. But right now they're offering a major discount if you get E85. It's, a, it's the biggest consumer of E85, right? That, that's right. And again, I think it, it, no it, it, well, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. I think it goes to show that if you um, take away the regulatory barriers and let the market and let consumers in this state choose what option works best for them, they're going to flock to lower, you know, lower carbon liquid fuel blends like E85. And we're definitely seeing that in the state of California. Uh, more E85 consumed here than anywhere else in the country. Uh, you know, you drive by a station here in, in Southern California that's offering E85, and you'll see it's being offered today at a, at a 250 or $3 per gallon discount. You know, that's 40% less in many cases than E10. And so if you're driving a flex fuel vehicle, that's getting your attention. And, and that's why we're seeing so much growth in E85 in the state. Again, LCFS plays a big role in that as well, um, which is why we're supportive of the program uh, overall. But uh, we just think CARP could do a better job with it. But that's if they have a flex fuel vehicle, which there's not very many available new to buy, right? That's right. That, that And that is the biggest challenge. And, and one of the biggest concerns we're hearing from retailers, sellers of E85 in the state of California is, hey, this is great right now um, because there are still a lot of flex fuel vehicles on the road, but 10 years from now, what are we going to do? There's only, you know, Ford is the only automaker offering new model year 2024 flex fuel vehicles, and it's a F-150. It's one model. Um, 
So that's where, you know, conversion kits and some other things come into play. But the bottom line is we have got to get our federal government and the California government to re-embrace flex fuel vehicles uh, and, and establish some sort of incentive or credit uh, to help automakers, encourage automakers to build those vehicles. You know, right now, all the incentives are being stacked uh, on, on EVs. And, and, and so, of course, that's what the automakers are focused on. Well, of course, we had uh, Secretary Vilsack here, and um, he made some comments particularly about E15 and, and the approval by EPA of nationwide uh, of year, year-round sales. So just comment on some of uh, Secretary Vilsack's remarks. Yeah, again, um, you know, I think there's a, a little bit of a good news, bad news story there. Uh, Secretary Vilsack seemed to confirm some of the rumors we've been hearing that, you know, EPA is likely to approve the petition from eight governors to allow year-round sales of E15 in their states, which is great news. We've been waiting on that for years now. Um, but at the same time, it sounds likely that they are going to delay implementation of that until 2025. So that leaves us in a lurch for 2024. Summertime is just around the corner. What's the marketplace going to do with E15 uh, come May 1st and and June 1st? Now, Secretary Vilsack did mention he thinks it's likely that we will see uh, emergency waivers or some sort of uh, allowance from EPA this summer to sell E15 nationwide and year-round. And, of course, that would be great news. But long-term, we've got to resolve this in a way that provides certainty to the marketplace and stability so we're not dealing with this every spring wondering what in the world is going to be allowed and what the rules are going to be when summer rolls around. Well, there was so much at this conference, but but one of the last things we had here was on trade, and we had a USTR's ag negotiator here, Doug McCallop. What did you think about what he had to say about the potential for increasing exports? Well, I was very encouraged, again, by his comments. Uh, our, our theme of our conference was powered by partnerships, and, and the U.S. Trade Representative's Office and, and uh, Ambassador McCaleb have been great partners to the industry, to RFA, when it comes to building new markets and, and opening new markets. And he really did uh, discuss some of the positive progress we're making in, in, in Latin American countries, um, some of the developments in Japan that are leading to growth and demand for our product, uh, but he also addressed some of the barriers that we continue to face, and, and namely Brazil. We still have a, a, a punitive tariff against U.S. ethanol in that marketplace, and so we're not exporting much, if if any, to, to Brazil. Uh, and he also addressed China, which at one time was our largest ex- export market, um, and talked about some of the challenges there. But it, it was clear to me that USTR is hard at work um, in looking for ways to resolve some of those challenges and, and continue growing the global marketplace for ethanol. Again, there was so much here and only positive comments. Everybody was thrilled. A real timely and important uh, schedule, agenda that you had. Well, I, I think we've done a good job of finding the right mix of, of topics. We, we have some that are a little more technical in nature and a little further in the weeds. Um, we have others that are, you know, really focused, uh, focused on the policy. Um, you know, we had Charlie Cook come yesterday and talk about the elections uh, and the outlook for, uh, you know, the presidential election in November. So I, we, we, I think we've uh, struck a good balance of subject matter and topics that are of interest to a, to a wide range of people. And that's why we're seeing our attendance continue to grow. It's why we're seeing new people come to, to the conference. 
um, and, and we're going to continue building on that. And next year you're going to be in Nashville. Next year in, in Nashville, Nashville for the very first time. We've never done the NEC there before. We're very excited about that. Uh, judging uh, from the comments we got from attendees, they're very excited about being in Nashville next year. It will also be the 30th annual National Ethanol Conference, which is uh, you know, pretty exciting for me that, that 2025 is going to be the 30th year of this conference. So we're going to make sure we celebrate that, and, and we're looking forward to that event as well. All right. Well, congratulations on a great conference here at the National Ethnic Conference in San Diego. I'm Cindy Zimmerman. Don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or just need to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour, and it is available on both Android and Apple devices. Wrapping up our news for today, the Agriculture Secretary says eligible applicants now have until May 21st to submit funding requests for the latest rounds of the Reconnect Rural High-Speed Internet Program. Here's Rod Bain. Part of the series of rural investments announced midweek by Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack in North Carolina, those focused on improving high-speed internet access and infrastructure. Among those, $42 million in grants through the Reconnect program. Now bringing total investments through eligible projects to $3.7 billion with a B dollars. And the secretary used the Rural Prosperity Town Hall to announce the next round of reconnect opportunities. So communities now have an opportunity beginning on March 22nd to be able to apply for resources. They can provide for up to $200 million in loans or up to $150 million in grants to be able to expand access to high-speed internet. Those applications will start on March 22nd and they'll be open until May 21st. With information available at www.usda.com. Gov slash reconnect. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.